0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's get started. Let's open with prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we gather in your presence, in the presence of the great, the powerful, the gracious, uh, covenant-keeping God. We thank you, for the coven- thank you for the covenants that you have made throughout history that we'll look at today. We are painfully aware that we gather in front, of, in front of you as covenant breakers, every one of us today. And as we feel unworthy now, we'll feel even more so as your word searches our hearts this morning. I pray you would, I pray our response would be to come back to you in faith at the end of the day. Lord, bless, this, uh, bless the teaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So We are working our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith Sunday School in the morning. We are on Chapter 7, at least I'm on Chapter 7, so that's what we're talking about, of God's covenant with man. Whenever we try to consider one one attribute of God, we try to just isolate one facet of his character, his nature, his personality, it's almost impossible to avoid thinking about everything else we know about God. They just go together. They fit together. fits together so perfectly, all his attributes. So when we, when we come to a doctrine like the covenant, it's easy to get excited and start running on our minds to talk about Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, of redemption, of atonement, of effective, you know, effectual calling, of everything that flows out of the covenant of grace, which we'll be touching on towards the end of this. But before, and, and frankly, after you know, Renton left us dead in sin with chapter 6 last week, uh, it's very tempting to try to go on to the good news of the gospel today. But before we do that, I want us to slow down, and as the Westminster divines do in section one of chapter seven, let's step back and just take a broader picture of God's interaction with man. And I'd like to do that with a little thought experiment this morning. I've been trying to do this all week. It's very, very difficult, um, but I think we can do But let's try it together. Imagine that, you're, imagine that you have the perspective of the angels in, and it's Genesis chapter 2. God has nearly completed his work of creation. He, has, he is creating man. He's scooped out a pile of dust from the, from the earth that he's, that's newly formed. He's breathed into man the breath of life. And Adam is sitting up, getting, you know, looking at his fingers, wiggling his toes, um, trying to blink, blink away what, non-existence. Um, it's his first few seconds of life on earth. The Lord God has made him, but has said nothing to him yet. So, try to forget for a minute everything we know about biblical revelation from this point on, and try to think: if you're an if you're an angel and you've not been informed of God's eternal purpose for mankind, what do you? What's the next step for God? What's he going to do with this creation, with this new crea- creature that he just formed out of the dust? What does God have to do at that point? Any thoughts? Yeah, Bob. Um, It seems to be at least God's father is father of all, greater of all, that he has somewhat of a problem sibling rightly. I mean, the angel shouldn't be that way. Mm. Possibly before that moment Adam was born. We don't know. That's that's another rabbit trail we won't go down. It is an interesting question, though. God had made the angels who were, uh, he'd made the angels, but he then made another to bear his image in a different, even a, in a more full way than them. And yet he did. Is your question a matter of dependency? <laughs> Whose dependency? Is who is God dependent? Are you saying God's dependent on someone? He should. No, I agree. So my question to you is, my question so I can understand the answer is, are you asking from a point of dependency or? Uh, you're you're touching on what I'm getting at. Does God have any obligation to His new creation at that point? Does God have to do anything in particular? No, 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 He doesn't. So human his- history could have ended it in just a few seconds right there. Who is dependent upon who in creation? We are dependent on God. Right? Now, does that, is that a comfortable thought? Is that a popular thought today? No, it's not. It says in Job 35.7, If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? Speaking of God. If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. Paul said it in Acts 17, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That's Acts 17, 24 through 25. It's very hard to think along these lines of God snuffing out his creation right after making it. Of God pulling back into something of like a deist, deistic relationship with man and having no involvement or communication with him. It's hard to think about these things because... We know the rest of the story. We know this is not the God we worship. This, we know this is not his plan. But the thing we need to remember is that, God's, that God didn't have to create man. He didn't have to enter a relationship with him. He didn't have to bless him or do anything with him. God needed nothing and yet freely made out of his good purpose for reasons that we don't even fully understand. In other words, there is no external compulsion that moves God to do anything. There's nothing outside of His own will that guides His hand. Now, why am I saying all this? Why? Why this? You know, why this tortured, you know, mental exercise this morning? It's because uh, it's because we need to remember that God's covenant is not purely redemptive. We think, we, our minds rush on when we think of the covenant to the covenant of redemption that he accomplished through Christ on the cross. But, even, but, that, but God's covenant with man was made, God was interacting with man through a covenant even before sin entered the world. The covenant was not just something created to respond to sin. The covenant was how God interacted with his creation from the very get-go. and that is how, And that is how the Westminster Divines begin chapter 7 with the first section that says, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessings and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. God is so completely different from us. To even reveal himself to us, he has to speak by analogy and by comparison. He has to stoop down and lisp to us that we can even understand what he's saying. He's so distant from us that if Adam had cognitive thought, if God had any awareness, uh, if Adam had any awareness of God at his initial creation, before God said anything, he would have no reason to expect God to say anything. Um, God would be so far above him. So right there at the outset, before we can understand the covenant and the wonder of the agreement and the relationship that it establishes, we have, to under, we have to understand the nature. We have to understand the character and the nature of God first, which is why this chapter comes in as the seventh chapter. So that we've already talked about God, and we have some nature of just how vast and powerful and far beyond and above us He is. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't derive anything from us that, that we can give him, that he didn't already give us. He is far, far beyond anything that we are. His authorship, his creative power, gives God the authority to demand and expect whatever He wants of us. And in his good pleasure, what he expected of us, he, he laid out uh, he laid out before Adam in Gen- Adam and Eve in the early chapters of Genesis. What was the command he gave after he created Adam? He gave several. Go and subdue the earth, be fruitful, multiply, rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, everything that moves about on the face of the earth. But there's one thing I'm thinking about in particular. To work the garden and keep it. To work the garden and keep it. In Genesis chapter 2, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree, of the, any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So God puts God puts a so. This is the first mention of what we know today as the covenant of works. God, enters in, God graciously condescends to enter into a relationship with man, and with the very first covenant uh, that's established on the earth. What are um, every covenant? Covenant usually has multiple parts, as, we th- as we'll see throughout Scripture. There is always a description of the parties involved, including the authority of the power, that initiates the relationship. So in this case, the party is God and man, his new creature in the garden. The authority of the power that initiates is clear because God is the one who is dictating the terms of the covenant to Adam. There's been, before this, there's, before the covenant is made, there's usually a historic preamble of what benefits have been brought. That's obviously the first chapter and a half of Genesis showing everything that God has done up to this point. There's a list of stipulations and expectations that rest upon both parties. In this case, the expectations are that man is to obey God's commands perfectly, and in return God will bring eternal life for obedience or bring death uh, bring death for disobedience. And of course that those are the sanctions of the covenant, the consequences for obedience and disobedience. Again, remember, there is nothing there is nothing there's nothing said or written or demanded in the, in, the, in the universe at this point that requires God to do this. This is something that he freely enters into. So even before the fall and the need for redemption from sin, faith is already required. God is already, God, God is already expecting his people to trust him and to take him at his word, to follow what he says right from the outset. And we see in this, knowing the rest of the stories we do, knowing, the, knowing, the, knowing sin and God's response to it that will follow, we see a great consistency and continuity in God's dealing with man throughout history, both, both after sin, but even before it as well. Faith is, even in the covenant of works, which, um, which puts all the emphasis on obedience, there is still faith here. There is still faith required. Adam was still working in faith and expectation that God was a God of his, own, of his word. Right from the get go. In this day and age, there's even uh, there's even debate. So, in the se- so and the confession uh, lays out this covenant of works in the section two of chapter seven which says the first covenant made with Adam made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience so that sets us that brings us through Ch- Genesis chapter 2 and that sets us up for what the f- for the fall that we t- that's basically everything that brings us up to what we talked about last week with the fall in, and with the fall and sin entering the world through Adam's first transgression. It's there's some there's some challenges with naming this covenant. It's commonly called the covenant of works, that's the way you usually hear it, um, uh, way you usually hear it referred. But covenant of works kind of hides the fact that God was gracious to even make it in the first place. There, uh, there is no, there is no, there is no reason in of ourselves why God should reward obedience to punish disobedience. God could, God could, God could react to us any way He wants to, if He was so pleased to do it. Uh, God could have chosen to be like, uh, like Islam teaches about Allah, that we can be as faithful and pure and obedient as we want, and Allah will just do whatever He wants. And yet, that is not the God we serve. You understand what I'm saying. I'm throwing out a lot of alternative possibilities for how God could have interacted with man. That's not to suggest anything that are true or happen in some alternate universe or any of these are possibilities. What, the only thing that can be is what God has orta- ordained. But I'm trying to push you to think a little bit about just how good God is and the way he interacts with us in these covenants that he's established. We, in and of ourselves, have no reason to expect anything better. And yet, we have been given such a wonderful treasure right from the outset of our creation. When we say the covenant of works, uh, so we shouldn't just we we look back at the covenant of works because we failed to keep it with uh, with a shiver and with horror. Um, But remember, even that was the beginning of God's perfect plan in history. Even that was gracious. Um, It's. And you know, we should remember that even the, second, the great, even the second covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace as we know it, that includes works as well. Those works are no longer the basis of our salvation, and yet, but the faith that has worked in us to accept it still produces works out of us. So we see faith and works at the beginning as well as the end in God's covenant plan. It would be tempting, uh, it would be tempting to, instead of calling it the covenant of works, call it the covenant of life. Because God promised God promised life for obedience, um, but life is promised in the later covenants as well. Eternal life is promised through Christ in addition to salvation. You might—it's—I uh, think it might be better to think about it as a covenant of creation, just because it follows so closely upon the heels of creation and establishes God and man's relationship right from the outset. Or we could even call it the covenant of grace, followed by the covenant of. More grace because that's what God, because that's the way, because uh, God just keeps pouring grace out upon mankind. There are many who, de- there are many uh, who even dispute whether a covenant of works even exists in Scripture, whether the passage I read constitutes a covenant. Um, but I think, and it's, there's many, pretty much everything, pretty much every verse of the first 10 chapters of Genesis has been argued about um, throughout, throughout the history of the church. But in Hosea 6, 6 through 7, uh, the prophet writes, "Speaking speaking of God, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. So this brings us back to last week. The covenant was established, the covenant was made with man upon condition of perfect obedience, and Adam failed to keep the covenant. He failed to hold up his side of the agreement. As a result, sin sin fell. And it was not just sin for himself, was it? It was sin for all of us. We are now all born into original sin with uh, with natures that incline to be disloyal and to transgress God's covenant wherever we find them. Because that's another aspect of the covenant, and the way God deals with mankind. God, does, God deals with us through, through headship and through representation. We, saw, we touched on this briefly when we discussed a histor- the importance of a historical, of a real man, a real man and a real woman named Adam and Eve in the past. Because if uh, that's how sin entered, but it's also, impor- it's also important to maintain that's how sin is taken away. Uh, through a new headship in Christ. And that's what the confession talks about next in section 3. It says, Man, by his fall, having made himself uncapable, uncapable, that's a good, good Westminster word, uncapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. So here is the second covenant. Here's the second covenant that our minds so easily run onto, the covenant of grace, as it's commonly called. Again, again, I've said this before, but I think one of the most amazing things when you study history, when you study, when you study everything, any part of God's creation, the most amazing thing is that there is anything at all. Because if, God, had, if God, God having been pleased to create man, to enter into covenant with him, to expect perfect obedience, and to be disappointed in that expectation, he had already laid out the sanctions of that first covenant. It meant death. And death could have followed immediately uh, following, the, following Adam and Eve's eating of the forbidden fruit but it didn't now this is an amazing now that's an amazing point in history because if God because God expects Adam and Eve to trust him and take him at his word he is a God of truth he is a God that is to be trusted he is to be uh, because he is infallible in everything that he says so his new creature has just, has just sinned against him now what is he supposed to do if he, uh, if he ignores the sanctions of the covenant, then he's not God anymore. He's not God anymore because he has to abide by his word. He invests his nature and his reputation into his word. On the other hand, if he does, if he does follow the sanctions of the covenant at this moment, then man will, then man will die and the, his, image bearer, uh, his image bearer over his creation will cease to exist. So instead, he makes a second. And here is where we need to be careful that we, don't, that we understand the way God works in covenant. This is not God stepping back and saying, again, if we may think about blasphemous alternatives to the righteous God, this is not God stepping back and saying, well, that didn't work out. That didn't work out. Let's try something else. God can't do that. His purposes are unchanging and perfect. So when we say a second covenant, it doesn't supersede the first. It builds, it builds upon what has already been established. As the the famous, famous passage in the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But have eternal life. Do you notice that? That's the very same promise given in the very first covenant. Here talking about Christ, the mediator of the new one. It's here that many Christians fall into error because they, they I think unintentionally, but they treat God as if he were indecisive or if he were surprised uh, in his response to, this, to sin. This is, um, this, is the, this is the basic point of dispensationalism, if I may put it very bluntly. In dispensationalism, God's first covenant, God's first interaction with man, didn't work. So he had to adapt. He had to think on the fly. He had to be flexible and create an entirely new way of dealing with man. In fact, in dispensationalism, he came up with many, many, many ways of dealing with man. Um, perfect obedience didn't work so he instituted uh, so he instituted sacrifices, he instituted blood sacrifices that would reconcile man to God. He brought about the law and said again you, know, you have to keep this as best you can and we'll try to go with that and then the nation of Israel disappointed him again and so he had to he had to wipe so he uh, he destroyed them and he said okay let's try it we're gonna try it with the church for a little bit and I'm gonna save them by they have to believe in Jesus this ties right in with another, uh, another great error that grows out of this, Arminianism. Again, Arminians think that God set the standard that was so high and said, man, you have to be perfect to this standard. And man fell. And so God said, okay, let's, um, let's make it easier. You don't have to keep all the law perfectly. You have to just do one thing. You have to believe in Jesus. I need you to come up with just enough faith, that little, must, that little uh, proverbial mustard seed of faith to believe in Jesus and then you'll be saved. Surely, God thinks at least a few men and women in the world can come up with that, right? Is that the offer of salvation that we make? Many people believe that it is. Many people read John 3:16 and they say that and when they read that God so loved the world, that the whole world, he means that Jesus died for every single man, woman, and child on it. And it's simply up to us to accept that salvation, perp- uh, that salvation that's offered to us. Is that the way salvation works? No. No, it's not, because God's covenant is efficacious. God's covenant accomplishes exactly what he wants to do. And yet we're still in this conundrum as men and women, because personal obe- our personal obedience is no longer possible to attain the promise of the first covenant. And yet the promise of the first covenant is still offered. So what was the second covenant? What was the second covenant that God, that God created? This is not a trick question. I know I've said tricky stuff this morning. Covenant of grace. And what happened in the covenant of grace? How would you explain the covenant of grace to someone? forgiveness. But before we but when we understand, understand the second covenant, we have to understand the first. What did the first covenant require? First covenant required perfect obedience, which means it still requires perfect obedience, doesn't. Covenant perfect obedience. This time Christ accomplishes that. Exactly. Exactly. So Christ so God so God appointed a second covenant building upon the first and with it a new covenant head with Adam failing, he appointed Christ to be, uh, to be this, the last Adam, to be the head of a new people for him. Who are the parties to the Second Covenant? Well, it's… Uh, are they? Right. That's right. And once again, we see the graciousness of God again. The second covenant is made not with man's fallen creatures who've already failed the covenant. God cannot, God can't make another, God can't, if God tries to make another covenant with us, he has to, he has to try to supersede or do away with the first, which he cannot do. His nature will, his holiness will not allow that. So instead, he must come to another. And he does it with a new head who is both, who is man to represent us, but also God to enable him, but who enable him to keep it perfect? To keep the first covenant perfectly, and that's what he does, and that's that's why the second covenant is made with the Lord Jesus. And then we see the we see the groundwork of that laid, right away, uh, right away in Genesis, right away as soon as man has fallen, then God immediately sends the promise, uh, that uh, the promise of restoration. In Genesis chapter three, he writes. The Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this." Cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I made reference to the angels at the outset, contemplate, you know, contemplating this new creature that God had made on earth. And as as Bob mentioned, we kind of have we kind of have two we have both men and angels in uh, that have been created by God around this period. The angels, have, members of the angelic race, have already have rebelled as well, and the fallen angel is already in the garden conspiring, conspiring with uh, with God's second creature, uh, God's uh, second creature and his image bearer. And in this, uh, and in this, in it, So in this. Fallen angels and fallen mankind, there's already there's a unity between them. They're already coming together in rebellion to God. And God's first promise of the gospel, his first word of the second covenant that he would give is to say, I'm not going to allow that, that rebellion to continue. I'm going to put enmity between the, two, between the rebels against my name. He will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And he'll do it because, And he'll do it by offering redemption and salvation to mankind again. Which is a blessing and a grace that He does not offer to the angels. There will be no fallen. There will be no redeemed fallen angels in heaven. Those who have fallen away, there is no hope for salvation. They will follow their Lord and Master and the Prince of Darkness into hell one day. And yet, for us, for, us, for and yet for us, for some reason, He chose to make an, a covenant. He chose with us to offer us salvation and grace again. That should really just, that should blow your mind this morning. I know this is basic, basic reformed theology. I mean, this is so central to the, reforma- the teaching of the Reformation that reformed theology is often called covenant theology. And it's for this reason. The covenant undergirds everything, uh, everything about our faith, but not just our faith, not just our little corner of the Christian world. It undergirds everything in the world around us. Uh, Rent, again, Renton touched on this before. And, um, and I've been thinking about it ever since last week. Everything we do, everything we do is covenantal in nature. In expectations between, in contracts between employers and employees, between, uh, between, sta- between companies and subcontractors. When we establish, when mankind establishes governments of various forms, they're based upon agreements. They're based upon sanctions for keeping, for either side breaking or keeping the agreement. Uh, when we get married, it's formed under a covenant, and there are contractual obligations that go along with the romance and the love and the service alongside of it. In our in membership in the church is through through covenant. These things are not all covenants themselves. Some of them are contracts. Uh, some of them are simply agreements, um, but they're all they all show that we are covenantal in nature. We make. A, uh, when I work for, as many of y'all know, I work for a nonprofit here out of South Carolina, and we go into communities and build safe water solutions for people who are drinking out of uh, streams and getting sick. Um, we'll go in, we'll install systems that take that water and make it as good or better than anything we drink here in Spartanburg County. And to do that, we don't go through the community and ask every, every single person living in the community, hey, would you like this? We meet with leaders of the community. And lay out the advantages—the advantages that we believe we can bring to their community—and then they sign with us a memora- what's called a memorandum of understanding. That, on behalf of their community, they agree not only to accept the help that we can bring, but also take responsibility for its operation, and for its maintenance going forward. Um, so we're giving them—we're giving them both an opportunity for he- greater health and prosperity, but we're also giving them work to do in the future. And so they have to take—they have to take on both. And that allow, that. What that allows us to do is, it means we can serve more people because we don't have to. If we build something, if we build something in a city in Peru, we don't have to. We don't have to keep it running from now on. We can do our work and then we can leave and step away, and uh, let let the work go on. It's just one more way of the way we work. Uh, way we work to serve many people through representation and through agreement through agreements with consequences, just like God with, with us. And all of that is just a reflection that we are God's image bearers, we are his creatures, and we are we work and think and act covenantally just like he because he did it with us first. And he did it in so many ways. In section 5 of the Westminster Confession, it says, This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith and the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Going back to dispensationalism we talked before, one of the reasons that dispensation, that many people believe in dispensationalism, that believe that God interacts with people very, very different ways throughout history, is just because the outward signs, the outward uh, symbols of the covenant were so, appear at first glance to be so different between the way God's people came to him in the Old Testament and the way they come in the New. It's prob- it, it seems like because, there's so much, because there is so much emphasis on rules and regulations and practices in the Old Testament and there's such detail, there's such detailed laws on sanitation, on hygiene, on diet, on personal purity in the Old Testament, the thought is uh, that doesn't look anything like what we're doing here in the New Testament church. So God must have decided to try something different, uh, you know, through that, through a couple thousand years of history. But what we don't, but we need to remember that God isn't surprised by anything that we've done or anything that happened in history. This is all part of His plan and the gradual unfolding, gradual unfolding of it. Even in the Old Testament, there is no, uh, it's a common theme to read not in the midst of all of the law and all of the rules. Uh, what God, what God's prophets continually bring to the people is I will is you must I want your hearts I want your hearts to be soft towards me and if you will and if your hearts are hard I may punish I may I will discipline you to soften your hearts. All of this was a discipline to show the people the need their inability to on the one their inability on the one hand to serve God perfectly and yet their need of Him at the same time. Law and grace were in full operation together. The one, law teaching people and leading people to gra- their need for grace was in operation in the Old Testament just as much as it is today. There is so beware in your own thinking um, the radical discontinuity that dispensationalists tries to teach us that God ha- that God had changed His plans and get to remember that He is one God with a holy, perfect plan to draw people to Himself. The whole point of the law that He established was to show how no one, could, no one could be saved by works anymore, and grace was required. The nation of Israel looked ahead to the perfect work of Christ as we now look back to it. I don't think this is said anywhere better than Romans chapter 4, where Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not. Take into account. I love this passage and the way, God, the, way the truth of God's mercy and, and grace mingle so freely, both in the present that Paul was writing in as well as in the past that he was considering. Abraham, Abraham was looking forward to Jesus just as Paul was looking back to Jesus in hope uh, in hope for the cause of the new covenant that resolved around him. We, I've, I've implied this, but I've just had to skip over it very briefly. God has got, we talked about two great covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace that followed. But there were other lesser covenants throughout, throughout, his, throughout history that God made. None of these, again, none of these were, should be viewed as radical changes in the way God interacts with man. But instead, successive building blocks in his plan of both life and redemption. It says in Galatians 3, speaking of Abraham again. So Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of abraham the scripture foreseeing that god would justify the gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you so then those who are of faith are blessed with abraham the believer so those who would see radical disconnect between the way god interacted with his people in the old testament with the nation of israel in the old testament and then with the church here in the new have to reckon with passages like this where Paul points out God only ever had one plan so even when he was dealing with a very small nation a small small group of people on the earth he had the long game in mind he was looking at them and he was establishing that he was building his covenant from us from very small humble beginnings not many mighty not many powerful just a ragtag band of slaves out of the nation of Israel but, he, but even as he worked with them and cared for them and patiently bore with their sins and their constant rebellion, he was looking for a day when he would fulfill that promise to Abraham, all the nations, we bless in you. And a time would come when he could claim, he could claim his children from every t- tribe and tongue and nation upon this earth. And that is what the covenant is doing. The covenant gathers people to God. He scoops them up in his, in his loving embrace and he has done it. he's done it through covenants throughout history. Because that, that brings us to Section 6 of the Confession. Under the Gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I love this insight. They say, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory... Yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. I always get jarred when they use the word dispensations there at the end, because I've just spent all this time critiquing dispensationalism, and now they had to go and pull that word. Granted, they didn't, know, they didn't have dispensationalism at the time. They simply meant by the word, different administration, different outward signs and forms. Ultimate reality below it was the same all throughout it. One last piece of speculation here before we wrap up today. As we th- I've said before, covenant is foundational to, God, to God's character, to our existence, and to our relationship with him. It is a foundational element of the world that we live in. It's even more, it struck me as I was reading all this, and particularly thinking about the dynamic between, we had a historical Adam, we have a historical Christ. Sin happened in a place and a time in history, and so too too did redemption. It had to happen by a specific man at a specific time in a specific place that God had foreseen. And yet, the efficacy and the power of both those times is not limited to when it happened. What am I saying? Adam didn't just die for didn't just sin for himself. He sinned for all of us. And every day we prove that we are his children as we continue to sin and rebel. Christ in the same way did not just live faithfully a perfect life for himself and then pay the price for our sins. He didn't just do it he didn't just sorry. He didn't just die for his own sins. He didn't just live perfectly for himself. He did it for all of us. But he did it at a very specific moment on the cross in history. It's often, uh, many, many new believers are often befuddled by the fact when they hear that Abraham and Moses and Miriam and David uh, were saved before Christ had even died for their sins yet. we were saved by looking forward to him. But is that, any more, is that any more remarkable than us looking back to a man who died and is gone, no longer with us and trusting in him for our salvation? So time, the timing of these things is critical of God's plan, and yet time is no, limited, is no limiting factor. On their power and the work that they accomplish. In that way, co- the covenant is almost more foundational to our existence than time itself. We're used to being bound. We're used to being bound by the hours of the day. We feel like they're never enough. We feel like we're, we feel like our lives are, particularly those of the kids. We feel like our lives are just flying by, one moment to the next, and they're gone. We sense, you know, as the years advance upon us, we sense the end of our time on this earth. And time feels like the relentless, relentless enemy we can never chase. And yet, Christ has not only conquered sin and death; He's conquered time itself. His work on the cross, because of what, because of the nature of the covenant, was able to supersede all of human history. And so, just simply looking to it in faith, to come or faith past, is enough to save us from our sin and reconcile us to God. That's a heady concept here at the end. Um, so I hope that's I hope that's helpful. Um, the thing to remember, though, is just how much uh, is just how much we owe the Lord, and how much uh, how much we have built upon His covenant throughout history. So praise God for His covenant today, and do that in your prayers throughout this day. Remember this in conversation with others: that our we do not offer them in Christ a just a good example, or a possibility of salvation, or or you know or um, or a feeble flickering hope. We offer them a surety, because God's redemption is tied up. God's redemption is built upon His character and His nature. His covenant is not His covenant. The covenant of grace that we benefit under was not, uh, was not a last-ditch effort. It was not come up with the fly. It was planned even before sin came. The solution for sin was already known, planned and prepared for, and the building blocks for it laid into place. And that's just how certain our salvation is, and that is the hope that we have to offer. Uh, we have to encourage our own souls and to offer to others as well. Any questions this morning as I wrap up, as we wrap up, bring this to a close? Then let's pray and prepare to worship our God of the covenant. Lord God, we cannot Lord God, we are we are full, newly aware of the distance between You and ourselves. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. They are far above and beyond us. And yet, for a few moments, as we study Your Word and see how it all, see how Your revelation fits together, we've gained we've gained a small glimpse into Your nature and into Your goodness as well as Your power. Lord, our mind, Lord, expand our minds. Uh, to know more about you that you've shown us you've given us a, you've given us sufficient material for a lifetime of contemplation for want, for study and for wonder i pray we've take full advantage of it lord let us be captivated and fixated upon you as we move uh, move from teaching into preaching and into worship lord prepare us for prepare us for that i pray in jesus name amen